it's great to be back. Great to be opening God's Word. Let me encourage you to keep that passage open in front of you. Or if you haven't got it open, get it open either on your device or the old-fashioned way that I like, which is the actual Bible uh, book technology. Um, Before I do anything else, how about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us about how we can have eternal life. But also about how we live as those who are saved and who are awaiting for your son to return, to take us to glory. We ask that as we read and think about your word again, that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would not only understand it, but that we'd also live by it. Amen. Well, if you are unfortunate enough to see the news, whatever news, you'll often see human suffering. It could be a hurricane or it could be an earthquake or it could be floods or diseases or drought or famine and poverty. The world is full of human suffering. And we ask ourselves these questions as we see these pictures on the news. What can we do about it? Why should we do something about it? And the parable of the Good Samaritan gives us answers. So let's have a look at the scriptures and see God's answers. Join me in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So the passage starts with this clarifying question. Uh, we had an expert in the law, the backstory, expert in the law comes and he wants to understand what he needs to do to have eternal life. That is, what he needs to do to get into heaven. Okay? And he wants to minimise, if he can, the law's requirements. Uh, he's asking the same question that every student asks in every school that I know, which is, What do I need to do to pass? What's 50%? When I was going through uh, university in Newcastle, we had a saying which was, P's mean degrees. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to get 50% and then you get out there with that piece of paper in your hand. That's all you need. Okay? And it's it's an acid question, isn't it? For us, what does it mean? What do we need to do to get to heaven. And so Jesus says, what does the law say? And so we end up with this clarifying question because he wants to know who is my neighbour. Now you can read through the lines there pretty easily to find out that he wants to know what the absolute minimum requirement is. If he's anything like us, you know, he'd be hoping that Jesus will say, well, it's the bloke who lives that side of you. And the bloke who lives that side of you and no one else. Love them and you'll enter heaven. And that's good because you might have lovable neighbours. But what happens if you don't have lovable neighbours, friends? What do you do? Well, you move, of course. (laughs) 
And then you have lovable neighbours, you love them, and then you get into heaven. It's fantastic. And he gets, so that's why he's asking this question. He wants to know what is the minimum. It's a natural human question. We mustn't judge the expert in the law here. He's just like us. That's the question that we ask all the time. And Jesus responds by not telling him directly, very frustratingly, but by telling a story. And it's a story about neighbours. Have a look at verse 30. In Jesus' reply, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So Jesus tells us about a helpless human. He's lost what money he has, he's lost his clothes, and he's lost his health. He's lying there completely helpless, and there is no way he can retrieve the situation by himself whatsoever. In fact, he needs immediate help or else he's going to die. And that's just like the many humans affected by natural disasters or extreme poverty around the world. They need help just to live. And they're more help to fulfil their God-given potential. There are lots of helpless humans around the world. Who is going to save him? Well, in verses 31 and 32, we meet two potential saviours. But they turn out to be indifferent humans. Practically indifferent to his needs. Both of them were likely candidates. Two fine, upstanding citizens. The first one we meet... Uh, is a priest, and the second is a Levite. And they were the good people of their day. If you wanted to think of them today, you would think they're the kind of people who are in Rotary and Apex (laughs) and Lions Club and in the Historical Society and you just keep going. They're the people, you know those people. They're those people who are always giving to their community. They're good people. But they walk by on the other side of the road. They're indifferent humans. Now, if you read all the commentaries, they'll say, they'll come up with all these reasons why they might have passed by on the other side of the road. If they touch him, they would become ceremonially unclean. And so they're making a strategic decision because if they become ceremonially unclean, they can't do their other work. Or, Or they talk about them being too fearful Uh, of themselves being set upon by these robbers who are obviously out there because there's the evidence right in front of you. Uh, And perhaps they thought, well, someone should do something to help. Maybe the government. The reality is we don't know what was going through their minds. We're not told and it really doesn't matter. What matters is that they did nothing to help the helpless human. They were practically indifferent to his suffering. And they're really just there to set up the third person to come along. It's one of these things about stories. Have you ever heard of the rule of three? Heard of the rule of three? Okay, there was a bloke from... 
Robertson? There was a bloke from Sutton Forest and there was a bloke from Barrel. <laughs> okay. What's the other, first two are there to set up a pattern and the third one is to be the punchline or the thing that shocks and surprises you. So he's set things up nicely now and here we come to the surprise. Have a look there in the passage. Who is it? Verse 33, but a Samaritan as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. The saviour, the most unlikeliest of neighbours to this man, is the guy from Samaria. Now, we kind of lose the, the heat out of this, don't we? Because we don't have a great rivalry in this land, do we? We don't have like an enemy that we've gone to war against over hundreds of years and committed atrocities on and they've committed atrocities on us. We don't have that, do we? You know, I mean, I used to talk about, you know, Wee War and Narrabri because I used to live in Wee War. Just pretend that you know where that is. And, you know, we used to talk about Narrabri. And those guys in Narrabri. And every year at the football, it was all about beating Narrabri. It didn't matter if where we came in the comments, as long as we beat Narrabri. But it's not really the same thing. I mean, you have the same thing a little bit with other country towns that start with the letter B. But it's not the same. We find it hard to feel the, the enmity the depth of feeling that they would have felt. The Samaritan is the enemy. The person that could turn around and hurt them or their family next. So when Jesus is telling this to first century people in Judea, he's talking about their worst enemy. I mean, they didn't like the Romans, but the Samaritans, they hated. There's a different level again. And so this person is the most unlikeliest of neighbours. He doesn't live next door. He doesn't even come from the same country. He's not a friend or a relative. He's a traditional enemy. He is the most unlikeliest of neighbours that Jesus could pick. And yet he is the one who sees the man and has pity on him and stops and helps. It's interesting to know that we're told about his emotions. This is not a cold, rational act to fulfil a law. It's a human action by a man who is moved by another's suffering. And wants to do something about it. And his act is generous. It's not cold or calculating. He offers to pay more for the man if the two silver coins are not enough. That's like writing a blank check and saying, fill it in, innkeeper, for whatever you need. I mean, even if the guy 
is not going to be a malingerer. Now, even if he's fair dinkum sick, he could take a long time to heal. And he's basically said, I'll make good whatever it is. He's opening himself up and making himself vulnerable to help this man. He is the unlikely neighbour who is moved to help. And it's a fantastic story that Jesus tells. But the punchline is in verse 36. That's when we really see what Jesus thinks. Have a look at verse 36 of these. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Do you see what Jesus does here? He has taken the question of the expert in the law and he's turned it upside down. See, the expert in the law was asking, who is my neighbour? Hoping for a nice narrow definition, of course. Then Jesus turns the question around and says, well, who can you be a neighbour to? It's very similar to someone who once said something like this. Do not ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Now, everyone over a certain age will know instantly who I was talking about there. Everyone else, it's on History Channel and you can find it. It's a flipping of the common question on its head. And that's what Jesus does here. So most people say, well, what can my country do for me? And JFK says, no, that's the wrong question. The real question is, what can you do for your country? And Jesus, we say, who is my neighbour? And Jesus says, no, who can you be a neighbour to? That's the right question to be asking. And that makes it literally anyone in need, anywhere, is or can be your neighbour. Or rather, you can be a neighbour too. That's a lot of neighbours to love, including some who are the enemy. It's an impossible number to love. And friends, what it does very cleverly for us is show us the futility, the absolute futility of trying to earn our way to heaven by keeping the law or by doing good. For when we really understand the law, we see the enormity of the task of keeping it. It's like going on a bushwalk and you're there and it's in the mist and on the map, you go, oh, that looks like a little hill. We'll go up that. Have a look out there. And then the mist clears and you see for the first time just how big that mountain is with the snow on top of it. And you go, I think we'll go back to the picnic area. 
It's too big. I can't do it. And friends, it's the same with us and the law. When we understand the law properly, we see that we can't keep it. As Romans chapter 3, verse 20 puts it, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. When we understand the law properly, we realise our need for a saviour. And thankfully, a good Samaritan has come and saved us. You see, the ancients, when they looked at this parable, interpreted it as an analogy of the good news of the Lord Jesus. The man on the road represents our spiritual state, dead in our sins and transgressions, helpless and unable to earn our own salvation. The priest and the Levites represent other ways to get to heaven by keeping the law or by being good or whatever. And whatever it is, they don't work. They don't save. But then you have the Good Samaritan, the most unlikeliest of saviours. You know, like a, a man born in a shed and stuck in a feed trough. Instead of a cradle. Who grows up in a tradie's house. And then dies on a cross for sin. It certainly wasn't what Israel was looking for. What were they looking for? Well they were looking for the next King David weren't they? Someone to boot out the Romans. Ride on a big horse. Or in a big chariot. Someone who would save them from the Romans. But Jesus isn't that. He is the unlikely saviour who frees from sin and death and judgment by dying a humiliating death on a cross. Friends, the worst way to look at this passage is to look at it and say, oh, I should go and do likewise and earn my way to heaven by doing good to those in need. Let me tell you now that if that's what you think, then think again. The task is too big. You cannot keep the law. You cannot even keep that one part of the law that says, love thy neighbour. Not completely. Not properly. But you can be saved by the one person who has kept the law perfectly and then died for those who couldn't. The Lord Jesus Friends, when we choose to be generous to someone and help those in need, it, 
we aren't saving ourselves. We are being like the one who saved us. And that's why we should do something about those in need. It's called being Christ-like or godly. It's being conformed to the likeness of his son. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Wouldn't it be amazing to become more like Jesus? Wouldn't that be fantastic? That's the right motivation for helping those in need. It's not a pathway to earn your way to heaven. But what about that other question? What can we do about human suffering? Well, our passage, in one sense, calls us to be like Jesus and see the person in need at our feet. The person suffering, whom we can be a neighbour to. And friends, I reckon, because it was the same in the country towns where I was a minister, that there will be people in Robertson who are in all kinds of different needs. Most likely not starving to death in Robertson. There's a very good pie shop, I think, up there. I'm partial to pies, so forgive me for that. But they might need other things. And they might be poor in other ways. And you can choose to be a neighbour to them. There might even be people who get lost and they've come down from a town that starts with B and you can be a neighbour to them. Even though they come from up there. They might have a need. It might be that they just need someone to talk to. Someone who will listen. And yes, usually when someone really, really needs someone to listen to them, it's because they're hard to listen to. But that's love, isn't it? And yes, there are people who are in material need as well, both locally but usually more so overseas. And it's a great thing to provide food and shelter and medicine and education and friendship and words of encouragement. And there are a myriad of different ways you can do that. So let me encourage you to be active in doing that. Friends, as we are able... Let us see the needs of people and choose to be a neighbour to them. Not to save us, but so that we are reflecting the Lord Jesus. To be like the good Samaritan who has saved us. Because as we do so, Bit by bit, God will shape us through a million choices to be more like his son. And that's the goal of our lives.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you that the Lord Jesus is our good Samaritan. We thank you that he saw our need and that he came and died even though we were rebels, shaking our fist and defying your authority. And we thank you for that grace that has saved us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would, having saved us, change us by your Holy Spirit. Work in our weak and feeble hearts and minds, changing the way we think so that we might go through life asking, who can I be a neighbour to? And then choosing step by step to bless others. And we pray that as we do that, we would so reflect the Lord Jesus and his character that we would bring honour and glory to his name. Amen.